0: I wanted to start off with the description of this project. Latin American popular culture offers a window and a mirror into the many worlds and histories embodied and circulated by the national and imagined pueblos or peoples. It remains an arena for ideas of nationalism and identity to be created, maintained, and shared within everyday life. So this project explores Latin America's rise and evolution of popular culture. Anthropologically, we will inspect the varied and sometimes conflicting ways in which popular culture maintains a public commentary on violence and nationalism throughout the hemisphere. We will also examine how popular cultures resolve social problems while casting a light on inequalities. In the context of Latin America and the Caribbean, race, gender, sexuality, and class persist as dominant conceptual frameworks, which complicate what we deem normative definitions and expressions of nationalism, identity, and citizenship. For this reason, we will ask how understandings of gender, class, race, and sexuality shape the ways they are represented or misrepresented in popular culture forms. How does Latin American popular culture mitigate and migrate the shape of the Latinx experience and culture industries abroad? Lastly, We will assess popular culture's social, and political impact on claims and affirmations of identity, belonging, and authenticity. In doing so, we will explore sports, television, food, film, art, beauty industries, music, and popular religion. And of course, with a ton of stories. Throughout, we'll ask, how is Latin America imagined or invented through expressions of popular culture? How do we develop this awareness of the social and historical context in which manifestations of popular culture have advanced throughout the hemisphere? We will explore the influence of colonialism and imperialism and Latin American culture. We will examine discourses about popular culture's political, social, and historical dimensions while developing an awareness of Latin America's varied and layered identities, so national, regional, continental, western, and non and the legacy of race, or rather racism, class, and gender, and how they play in its construction. I want to analyze with you how Latin American popular cultures are shaped by other cultures in an era of globalization, and in turn, they influence other expressions of culture. So think about all the sharing that happens in this space, and I'm glad that you're here with me. If we've ever interacted on Zoom, you would see that my profile picture is a photo of me three years old, um, dressed in what I perceive to be my Sunday best. But I'm in an airport, and I remember that airport. uh, It was the one in Barranquilla. But what has stuck with me is that I can't remember if I was going or coming, right? Like, am I leaving Colombia or am I coming to Colombia And I think I left a lot of my childhood in that state when I think about it. I am in these two worlds. For those of you who know me, I grew up in New York City, the Lower East Side or Loisaida. And also a significant part of my childhood was spent in Colombia on the coast uh, in a small town that doesn't show up on many maps. But for a very long time, it was the center of my world is where I learn to become, if that makes sense. I'm a heritage speaker, so I grew up speaking Spanish, and that has stayed with me. I think in Spanish, I feel in Spanish, I dream in Spanish. But I think if I have to say what's my official language, it's Spanglish. I am always in a hyphen on this border here, but not there. Over there, but not here. It's this double consciousness that turns into third and fourth. And I think that's what Latin America is, right? It's this disorientation of the best and the worst inside of us. And at the same time, we can't escape it because now it's become in vogue, Right? I was thinking about this in the context of uh, Bad Bunny, as one should, right? But in his song, El Apagón, he La says, Now everyone wants to be Latino, but they lack seasoning, drums, and reggaeton in El Apagón he says this and I thought it was so true I mean he's talking about our fragmentation and pluralization but at the same time we've become universal multi-diverse adaptable popular mainstream but what does that mean I guess that's the story of this podcast of this project A good place to start this conversation is to ask, what is popular culture or what passes as popular culture? Um, In the vernacular, we're talking about the people's culture, right? So in the context of Latin America, we're talking about el pueblo, the people. And it's also something that we think about in terms of social change. It's heavily influenced by mass media. It's a collection of ideas that permeate, everyday lives throughout society and pervades our private and public spaces. Think about it. That song Despacito, Despacito. Uh, you couldn't escape it for many years, right? I think it was 2016. And I remember that that year I danced that song in three different continents. And I thought that was fascinating because it wasn't that I brought my Despacito CD with me. Who listens to CDs? But you get what I mean. It was just that it was inescapable. And what does that song really talk about, right? It's and I actually ended up theorizing over it with my uh, friend and colleague and sister Amarelis Estrella, who's over at Rice University, because we're ta- we're co-writing an article on entornos, so environments, because the book we're working on, on Latina feminisms, they're publishing it under that series. And so we were talking about how are we going to fit this into the environment. But in fact, the environment is everything beyond our genes. So it's not just the water that we drink or the food that we eat. It's also the ideas we consume, the sounds the emotions that circulate. And so I was really highlighting one particular lyric in that song, which is, No te olvides de tu apellido. It's the part that Luis Fonsi sings. And I couldn't understand, what is he talking about? (laughs) Don't forget your last name. And then I just quoted it, and she's like, I don't know how I feel about this, because it's about you know, it's kind of sexist. And I'm like, that's exactly it. It's a it's a very archaic yet familiar way of policing gender, right? We know that Latina women are constantly clashing with the dichotomy of the virgin whore, right? And so this way of saying, don't forget, you know, your family, the honor and shame system, you know? So think about it. You're saying, give in to this pleasure, right? Slowly. <laughs> but at the same time, don't forget your family, which is like the last thing you want to think about, like your surname, you know, in the throes of passion. But I see you, Louis Fonsi, I get it. It certainly created a particular type of environment, right? Where my Latina body, felt visible in ways that were uncomfortable if you're actually just listening to the lyrics but let me explain popular culture in a working definition popular culture is the entirety of ideas perspectives attitudes memes count as popular culture images and other phenomena that are within the mainstream of a given culture although A lot of pop culture also starts in the fringe. I mean, think about punk rock. Every time I mention anthropology, I think of my work as punk rock. That was a subcultural group that emerges for social change, right? So again, this idea that Western culture dominates is problematic. But at the same time, if I think about all the uh, shows and films that are consumed in Latin America, they come from the par excellence ethnographer, Hollywood, right? And so even though we're talking about popular culture. In Latin America, I'm going to talk about it in the context of a hemisphere, the Americas. Because even though when I lived here in New York City and I was growing up, I was still growing up listening to Tepirito, watching it, right? At the same time, I was also watching, you know, Transformers. Transformers. I remember being in Colombia and seeing American television shows like Saved by the Bell, dubbed in Spanish, which is something that until this day I can't watch. My husband, who grew up in Argentina, tells me that's how he watched every show, right? And so Latin America and North America or the United States are constantly in conversation. And by the way, we're including also the Caribbean, the West Indies, Quisqueya, and my beloved Puerto Rico. Now, how is pop culture determined? Well, it has to do with everyday interactions. It's dynamic, so it's changing. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's about needs and desires and those cultural moments that make up life, public and private. Who influences it? I think that's important for us to think about because, in what we deem modern society, pop culture is influenced by the industries that disseminate cultural material. So, again, think news media, music, publishing, anime, cartoons, film. What makes pop culture unique is the fact that it is constantly changing, it is specific to a time and place. And yet, at the same time, it has new meaning in new context, right? Even if it is the same old show, I myself love sharing with my kids some of the shows I grew up with and, and I was watching. Although in this age of reboots, right, a lot of them are recreated. Even telenovelas, right? I saw recently that they had remade the telenovela Café con Aroma de Mujer, which is a Colombian soap opera that was actually very influential in my own life. It was the first Colombian soap opera that was played on prime time television by Telemundo, which started opening up a, a market. With Latin America, because before the only type of soap operas that we would watch came from Mexico, so Televisa or Venezuela, which was Venevisión at the time so in the mornings they would give these venezuelan soap operas which my mother was very against she was like i don't understand why these women are so oppressed all the time and they don't do something about it but that's the feminist my mother has always been but she would watch it but it was just to kind of say why is we why are these women in this way but it did give a, a release we were watching these soap operas in new york but we also felt connected to this place this latin american world where spanish was the official language everywhere and by the way fun fact the first romance language actually spoken in the united states is spanish so anytime someone tells you to speak american remember now there are different types of popular cultural analysis and we will do uh, a bit of everything here in this class or this space, production analysis, textual analysis, audience analysis, historical analysis. And these analyses seek to get beneath the surface, to, to dig deep on the meanings and examine more implicit connotations and broader implications of social meanings. Because at the end of the day, the forms of popular culture like music, television, sports, toys, comic books, film, advertising, fashion magazines, cyber culture these are windows and mirrors, but they're also tools to imagine social change, especially in the context of Latin America, and these ideas have traveled. Now, the issues that popular culture addresses have to do with race, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, cultural imperialism, censorship but the most common popular culture categories that we're familiar with in our everyday lives are entertainment sports news as in people places and news right um politics fashion clothes technology and in the united states we consume also a lot of what's happening in latin america because it's been globalized right and also the compression of time and space the internet Now, in real time, I could see what my cousins are doing back in Colombia because we all have Facebook and they have iPhones like I do. So it's a different type of consumption of popular culture than, let's say, when I was young, way back when. And that soap opera will play at a specific time, cafe con aroma de mujer, and I would not miss it. Unfortunately, prime time usually was during church time. So that's when my mom got a VCR, right? She was like, I am going to go to church, but I will also tape my soap operas. And for her, that was important, not because like, she's like, I can't live without them. But it gave her an escape, a release. It's why we all watch television. Although for me, given my research interests, I just call it research. Think about the ways that even sports speak to a nation's consciousness, right? I spent uh, this last World Cup watching it with family. And I could tell you that it was not about just cheering Argentina. It was about community. It was about rituals. It was about memories. And it was one of the best ones I've ever had. Uh, my research actually is on the 2014 World Cup uh, that takes up a significant part of my dissertation. But there has always been a hesitation for me to publish it. I felt it wasn't ready. And that's the thing with anthropology. Ethnographic time functions a little bit different. And at least for me as an anthropologist, it is only now that I feel that that story is ready because I am reading even my own cultural creation differently because of time and place. My story actually is about this win and the road there. And so think about all popular cultural expressions that tell you not only about a country, about a place, but about a memory, a feeling. So think of salsa and samba. The other day, I was telling my son that he has to take salsa classes. Like, it's really important that you learn to dance salsa. And I did not see it for any other reason. It's because, you know, when we have Christmas or we celebrate, that music plays in the background, right? That is the soundtrack of a lot of our celebrations and holidays. And I told him that, I promise you, it will help you in more ways than you will ever know. I perhaps say that because for me, one of the big ticket items when I met my husband was if he knew how to dance. And when he said yes, although I didn't believe him at the time, I was like, check, right? But also for me, and I think about this because we all grow up idealizing right what romantic love is and for me the references I had came from telenovelas right or at home and although my parents are great as partners I wouldn't particularly qualify their relationship as you know romantic in that way different time and place uh and so I get it and I don't personalize it but for me I always knew a few things despite the fact that I grew up here in New York City and I had lived by the time I met my husband in many different parts of the world, including Argentina and Spain, I knew that I needed to be with someone. And I always said this, even as a kid who spoke Spanish and not spoke Spanish, how, you know, he went and learned it on Babel, whatever app there is now. It wasn't like a Espanol con barreras, right? Or sin barreras. But I remember needing that and and thinking that was so important and detrimental for how I thought relationships, for me, were going to play out because I realized when I feel intensely or when I'm trying to communicate something passionately, I only think in Spanish right? I, and I mean, I. my son has witnessed it when I've gotten into angry fits and it's like everything comes out of my mouth in Spanish. And I don't know if it's because then I don't have a filter, right? And I'm not code switching and I'm not trying to sound like anything. It's just unadulterated, unfiltered words and they come out for some reason in Spanish, right? And so for me, I knew that I wanted to maintain that because that's where I felt that I would be able to effectively communicate, if that makes sense. But my husband, who speaks fluent English, now also has a similar uh, way of engaging with certain emotions that he only has definitions and words in English, right? So that's why I say Spanglish tends to be, you know, the official language in my home or at least in myself, if that makes sense. Rituals are related to religion, but also magic and carnivals. And those are popular cultural expressions. And some of them have been um, influential, especially in connecting communities. For example, in Colombia, the carnival season is in February. So you could see that if uh, plane tickets are basically in a ridiculous price now if you're not from colombia you have no idea why in february of all times are you seeing this spike in in tickets especially even after the holidays right but it has to do with carnival people travel from new york from all places to go to that carnival in barranquilla um same thing in terms of different festivals right uh, that people travel to go or, or to experience also with their families, like me. I was I spent the World Cup in Miami, the month of December. I kept going back and forth watching the games, not because Miami in particular uh, is like the next best thing, although one of the biggest Argentine immigrant enclaves is in Argentina. I mean, in Miami, but at the end of the day, it was about being with my family. But being with my family, then I was with this greater community. And at the end of the day, as every person who is probably listening to this, when any Latin American country is up against, let's say, England, France, any of the colonizers, you're going to get everyone going into this pan-Latino mode, right? And I think it's fascinating. I know that Ruben Blades has that line in one of his songs where he says something to the fact of when Argentina is against England, we're all Latinos, we're all Latin Americans. Like, these differences don't matter. And I think it's true. But I think about it also, think of science fiction, right? Science fiction was created with the idea or this genre that when aliens, let's say, come to the United States and invade us, that those divisions that we have will be insignificant. They wouldn't hold the same meaning and power to divide us because now we see ourselves as one against those, right? And I feel that that also extends to the idea of immigrants here in the United States. I mean, for a very long time they're called aliens right so think about that connection and their cultural popular expressions right that has to do with oral narratives so the narratives of let's say Latinos being threatening as the anthropologist Leo Chavez writes about in the Latino threat narrative has to do with particular historical moments around reproductive capabilities right Think about it. The browning of America is inevitable. So how do you stop it? You police the wounds of reproductive capability of birthing people, right? And so that becomes the space where you're trying to attack to stop this. So this is why you see clamping down on reproductive rights. And think about it. Where you have significant communities of Latinos living, you also have some of the most draconian reproductive rights law. That is not coincidental. And then how does that emerge in popular culture? This is happening in the backdrop. And look at some of the shows that emerge in conversation, i.e. Jane the Virgin, right? And so that show was was very big. and, and, And I kept thinking to myself, How is that conversation happening of like, great, this story that's kind of, you know, telenovela-ish, familiar, virgin whore dichotomy, familiar, how we're not talking about reproductive rights and what's happening in places in Latin America and how these ideas are problematic because they find themselves even in our homes. Think about uh, ideas of where a woman can go and walk alone at night, right? If you grew up with a brother in a Latino home and you're identifying as a woman, you know those differences full well around curfews, right? Around what will people say, el que dirán, these honor and shame systems that um, sometimes get muddled in popular culture. But think about the way that language, dress, and even political culture create popular culture because it usually comes from. Classes or ethnic groups that have something to say, but often are not listened to or are not centered. They're marginalized. In the nineteenth century, the notion of popular culture became interwoven with the search For an affirmation of national identity. And this is really important to think about in the context of Latin America, because once these nations start being imagined, or in the case of Argentina, Nicholas Shumway argues invented, right, then How do you maintain a script where everyone starts feeling, let's say, Colombian or Venezuelan or Puerto Rican? Look at Puerto Ricans are the proudest. I mean, I even have a flag in the middle of my living room. We love that flag. And why? It's because we are denied an identity, a national identity. You could have nationalism without a nation, i.e. Puerto Rico is not considered an independent nation. But you know what a Puerto Rican is. I was watching this film, which I love, The Cake. It's about, you know, this, this mafia family in Brooklyn. I mean, it's great. But I love it for one scene. Um, Luis Guzman is in it. Luis Guzman is an actor, Puerto Rican, from the Lower East Side, from the same projects from the Lower East Side, that I come from or they're nearby, but you know. And he has this one scene where they said something to the effect of, oh, but there'll be Puerto Ricans there. He stops their conversation. He's the driver, turns around. He goes, not for nothing. I'm Puerto Rican and I'm proud. That was it. That was his whole line in the film. And I loved it. I loved it. I, was, I felt seen, I felt heard. And I think the effect was that, if you're Puerto Rican, you're listening to people talking about Puerto Ricans in whatever way that can have a connotation um, that is negative. Will you just sit there? Will you not say something? And I just thought it was great because I think, right, especially he he wasn't saying anything offensive. He was just making sure that you knew that who's listening can be the same person that you're talking about or their community because that's how they identify but popular culture as folklore it's the whole way of life and people's way of life produces symbolic forms so music language literature and cultural artifacts i thought about this because one time my mother was telling me how her brother after um the death of their eldest one, um, he took out the accordion and started playing music silently. And I mean, these are older Colombian men now, right? Who still don't talk much about their feelings, but that was the way that he expressed himself. To this day, you could ask my uncle Luis what happened and you know when my uncle Juancho died, he was actually You know, he died tragically from a snake bite. But that's another story for another podcast. But for this, what I wanted to point out was the symbolic resonance of the accordion, especially in the coast of Colombia because of Agenato, which is the folkloric music. But I remember thinking that's such a powerful thing that he went to the accordion and he played it. And... To this very day, in my sadness and in my extreme joy, that accordion also hits me. I play Vallenato. When I used to um, drink copious amounts of whatever it was while I was writing my dissertation, a lot of it had to do with Argentina. But in my toughest moments, the music switched from tango and rock nacional to just straight up Vallenato. Because to me, it just strikes a chord. I can't explain it. But see, that's the thing with what is called popular culture. There's a piece of you in it that you see yourself in it or that you learn to see aspects of yourself through, right? I think about this even in language. So my family's from the coast of Colombia, Coteños, that's how we're called, Right. And a lot of the television that is produced in Colombia, for the most part, is in Medellin or in Bogota. But the lives of Coteños is kind of not as mainstream, and it's not the perhaps prototypical, quintessential, marketable Colombian image, right? Especially now with reggaeton, everything is centered in Medellin, even more so than Bogota. But I thought it was interesting also because... At the end of the day, when you think about the ways in which we create identity, popular culture is in conversation with it all the time. And so when I saw in one of those shows that I watched, they were making fun of the way the people from the coast speak. And we we speak very, um, what's called enredado, nodded. But for me, that's just how I speak. I didn't notice it. Or, I didn't think it was different because most of my Colombian friends, we all speak the same, not because we're from the same part of Colombia, but because we're here in New York. So, we create a shared vocabulary when we speak with each other, and the accent or the intonations may change a little bit, especially mine has maybe sometimes a bit of a porteña twang, or, you know, it has a little bit of a. Puerto Rican tinge to it. But what I thought was fascinating, though, in that context was it was the first time I understood how racialized people from the coast are, which makes absolute sense because this is where you had a lot of the ports where enslaved people were shipped and shipped in and shipped out, right? And so it makes absolute sense that the way we speak has a lot of Afro influence, And I just thought that's why also there is this tension. I had not made the connection despite growing up on the coast of Colombia, how actually racialized we were. And because I'm also coming from the United States where Latin America is flattened, right? There's a flattened, essentializing effect that happens when we learn about Latin America up north. Those distinctions... Those particularities, those nuances are completely lost. But I think it is important for us to think about. Now, at the end of the day, it is also critical to think of the use of popular culture in Latin America, particularly during the 20th century. So populist governments in the 1940s and 50s and the military juntas, the administrations or the dictatorships of the 60s, the 70s and the 80s, particularly in the Southern Cone appropriated popular culture to represent the nations for example during the dictatorship in Argentina they actually banned music in English right so you couldn't consume let's say the same music that was in style and so they created their own genre which is rock nacional which I know that when we think of also folkloric music people think more of Uh, andean sounds or horns or trumpets but rock nacional is actually the folkloric music of argentina that emerges as a result of the dictatorship right there's something wonderful about popular culture because its expressions its most poignant ones are mobilizing are centering but they emerge out of great oppression think of hip-hop comes out of the Bronx while it was literally burning. And yet now you listen to hip hop all over the world. In fact, it's consumed most by non-blacks, right? And that's just fact. And I think it's interesting, Brian Hurt, he has this documentary, Beyond Beats and Rhymes, and he looks at the way that hip hop becomes an ethnography of the black experience And that Black experience in America resonated for people throughout the world, in different parts. In France, you hear the rap of the French diaspora, or in Brazil, you hear it. And even though they speak different languages, they're speaking to a shared experience of oppression because of systemic racism, because of slavery, right? And so that becomes something that connects also the Americas in an interesting way, the presence of the experiences of imperialism, colonialism, and slavery, right? All these experiences that manifest not only in our literal DNA, but you hear it in the sounds of our music, even when you can't see us. Because tango, the word, is an African word, right? And some of the exceptionalist critiques of Argentina is that they don't have and Afro-Argentine visibility. In 2010, actually, in Argentina was the first time they reintroduced the concept of Afro-Argentine, or at least it became part of the Zeitgeist Because there was a campaign and they had this public awareness, this video of different Argentines of different shapes, sizes, colors, saying that they were afro Argentine to recognize the fact that even in their genes, it may not have expressed themselves. That presence, that origin is still there. And it was very powerful. And people are like, well, that's Argentina. Well, in the Dominican Republic, or rather, Quisqueya, Right. That was done by the Trujillo dictatorship. He was like, there are no black people here. They're only dark Indians, right? And how does that manifest in popular culture? How can I divorce that idea from when I see Sammy Sosa? How can I divorce that idea, right? That policy from the dictatorship in like what I hear around me when people say "negro," right? In a pejorative way, but at the same time, that same word can be said in an endearing way, "negrito." Now, it's important for us to think about also that at the same times, these dictatorships, these authoritarian governments, force subordinate social classes and ethnic groups to adopt ways of life that perhaps felt inauthentic to them. I think about that in terms of racial trauma, but let's say in places like Guatemala where, uh, or Peru, where indigeneity was blamed for the country's lack of progress, then you had these systemic rapes of women, right? To kind of try to whiten, right? Um, they attacked their reproductive capability to try to kill off the indigeneity. I mean, if you read A. Goberta Menchú, she explains that. But think about even the history uh, of that in Peru. Um, a great film made by Josa, The Milk of Sorrow, which is actually inspired by an anthropological study by Kimberly Thiden called The Milk of Study, La Teta Sustada." And the belief was that women who were raped during the Sendero Iluminoso, Luminoso, that dirty war, that these women who were raped, these indigenous women, they passed the grief, the mourning, the trauma to the breast milk, right? And so in this film, on this particular moment in time, Not only are they talking about this particular moment in time, right? The history of that real atrocity, but how it manifests, how it resurges, how we see it, we hear it in our everyday and at the same time we ignore it, right? And that's the thing where I think Latin America, it's not only about what we see, it's about what we don't see, what has become invisible, right? Systemically, whitewashing. Or also what has become seen, right? Because that tends to also happen with purpose. And when I'm talking about the Americas, I think for the purposes of this conversation, I just want to highlight that I am including Brazil. Again, I am including Puerto Rico. I'm talking about the Americas, right? And I'm talking about these places also that are shared right when you talk about the heart of the Andes or when you talk about let's say these border spaces right because Iguazu for example in Latin America is a, a beautiful um space but it's shared right with Brazil Paraguay Argentina and so it's one space but it's shared and so, We were divided and became nations as a result of colonialism, right? And the thing is, Latin America was colonized most effectively, not by war, but by religion. And for many years, Latin America and the church were one, right? The the Americas, rather, they were one. Because you didn't exist, actually, if you didn't have certificate of baptism from the Catholic Church. And so it wasn't necessarily that Latin America or the Americas is inherently more religious. It's that culturally Catholic, right? They're Catholic because of the role of the Catholic Church and the ideas, the seeds that they left to, to blossom had to do with gender race let us not forget that when bartolomé de las casas came to the indies right from spain he wrote back he became an ethnographer he's like hey to the crown i think we might be able to save the indians the browns they might have souls right but the blacks They don't. So it's okay to treat them like property. Obviously, I'm paraphrasing, but basically that's what happened. And this is why we have these racial hierarchies because guess what? Just like in the United States, blacks and whites in the Americas didn't start the race at the same time. So they're not going to be treated equal, protected as equals under the law. Same thing can be said for women. Women in Salvador, in El Salvador, for example, today could be sitting in jail because they went to a hospital because they had a miscarriage, right? And the doctor could accuse her of trying to commit a botched abortion, and so that is criminalized, and that comes from jail time. And even though, let's say, uh, miscarriage and a uh, abortion, right, are very different experiences. In Spanish, we don't even differentiate with the word. It's aborto, right, for for an abortion, but aborto espontáneo is for a miscarriage. It's a spontaneous abortion. Strange, loaded and problematic popular culture is embedded in systems of belief and at the end of the day if you think about the relationship of mass media and popular culture mass media has acted as mediators between the state and the masses between the urban and the rural between the tradition and modernity between us and them at the end of the day mass media is an interlocutor Is it a reliable one? Well, it can have competing interests, and we see it in the forms, right? Radio, television, telenovelas, films. Radio was introduced into Latin America in the 1930s, in the 1950s, television. But remember, having a television is an expensive commodity that only certain classes had access to. I grew up in, in Colombia where not everyone in my family had a television, right? Which for me, living in New York and then going to Colombia on vacation, it was really my real preparation to becoming an anthropologist because talk about adaptation. My sister had a much harder time, and I always tell the story of her breaking down, saying, all I want to do is go back home and watch Saved by the Bell because they used to give reruns all throughout the summer. And I got it. But think of our telenovelas. I was more of a telenovelas kid, even though I used to watch, you know, all the standard shows that my generation did, my so-called life, Daria loved them all. But I also love my telenovelas. And I think it is important to critically analyze them because those stories are powerful. They transform abstract issues into private passions. The plots revolve around the emotional life of family, good and evil, that struggle of oral narratives. It's open to the world of current events. So I remember at a time when the census was happening, the telenovelas that were produced in what I call Latinolandia, which is uh, Miami, Telemundo, you know, they're all about that neutralization of Latinidad they flatten it all out but I thought they were very strategic in the middle of the soap operas they would break into a scene of being like if the census comes knocking at your door no you do not have to open the door but you should count like they would embed a PSA a public service announcement in the telenovela and all I could think about was brilliant because guess what they'll probably listen. They'll probably watch your audience. They need to hear that. They need to be reminded. And so these telenovelas, as passionate and over the top as they may be, and I remember the soup they used to do clipos magnificos, kind of mocking it. They still hold opportunities to communicate with el pueblo. So It's important also to recognize that these are sites of mestizaje between the popular, the national, the transnational, the modern, and the traditional. And so it promotes sentimental integration, right? And that is important, that idea of sentimental integration, because that's what popular culture allows for a people spread throughout the world. Because I can't even just say that this is in the Americas. You have a growing Latin American diaspora in London, right? Or, 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 or throughout Europe, really, I mean, in Spain, you have a significant Colombian diaspora, Venezuelan, Argentine. And even though the Spanish use the term pejoratively sudaca, right? To talk about, you know, or to refer to racialized slur to the Latin Americans that are in Spain. It's important to know that it's not like we're frozen in time when we have these encounters. There is a clash, but in that clash or in that, you know, coming together, that encounter, there is an exchange, right? Right? Popular culture was seen as a form of resistance or oppositional culture, prefiguring a new social order no longer characterized by alienation and human exploitation, because if we can imagine it, if we can create it, we can become it. So it becomes a tool, it becomes a weapon to build and imagine the change that you might need and may not necessarily understand it. Right, Like understand, no, we need to move towards this progressive idea because it is in our best interest. And so what better way to maintain these conversations than in our popular culture? That what was so special about a lot of these musical genres that come out of Latin America is that they traveled and they found themselves as also a backdrop or soundtrack to moments in the diaspora, you know, New Year's. And it's interesting what happens with the movement of ideas and people and commodities is that then we create this shared one, right? So it's not good to essentialize a community. But I know that stereotypes are incomplete truths, And I laugh because I celebrated my brother-in-law's birthday. And he's, he's the owner, actually, of this wonderful restaurant in Miami with his other brother, Fiorito. If you're in Little Haiti, you definitely should check it out if you want authentic, great Argentinian food. I just think of it as family recipes. But I think it is important to know that I wanted to make it over the top because he's just one of those. He's my husband's older brother. So he was more always the caretaker. He's very self-sacrificing, very generous, hard worker. He's just like a good dude, right? And so he's also doesn't like a lot of spotlight. So we wanted to be over the top. And what did we do? We brought a mariachi, right? And I thought it was fascinating because... We were all crying listening to these songs. I'm not Mexican, but Erre, that song, I mean, I have sung it at I don't know how many bars, right? In those endless nights in the backyard with my family as we're talking and drinking and laughing, those memories, that music is ours. And I think that's what Latin American popular culture affords us the opportunity to do to have an hours, to create a community, to see ourselves, to be ourselves, to share ourselves, to be one. It is important to think about also how popular culture and concientización works, so consciousness, right? In this form of cinema or radio or theater, the popular exists in a different mode to let's say cinematic productions of the 1930s. That is, it becomes a commitment to use these forms as a way to raise consciousness. And what happens when you raise consciousness is when you're able to see you have a shared vision or, or shared struggle, right? It mobilizes, it activates. And that's why I position my work as a Latin Americanist having to be in the intersection of art, activism, and academia because these domains blur in Latin America. If you want to understand Latin America, yes, you can listen to Calle 13's Latino America or you could read Gabriel Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude or you could read also El Sur by Jorge Luis Borges. Or you could read Broken Spears, right? Again, it's a shared story, the open veins of Latin America, because they all bleed, right? They bleed into our lives, into our sense of health and self, into our identities. And it's important to situate this. The specificity of popular culture in Latin America lies in the fact that folk traditions persist and develop as part of the daily life and memory of communities that are marginalized of people who may not necessarily see themselves in official narratives they are creating their unofficial ones that become the ones that speak to us for example rock nacional it becomes a sonic archive of truth in the face of the impunity and injustices of the dictatorship same can be said for theater of the oppressed by Augusto Boal in Brazil. What does it do? It animates change, right? It allows lay individuals, ordinary citizens, to understand the power that they are able to harness when they are able to use, lift their voice. Now, folklore in Latin America still exists as a means for the construction of identity. So Afro, indigenous, gender, gender, migrant. It also endures as a reference point and material for elite art and literature, right? As a repository of themes, images, and forms of communication used by mass culture, as Vivian Schilling points out in her work. Now, I think it is important for us, again, think about how Latin American popular culture speaks to its history, its culture, its politics, But let's start this story understanding that it's one that's still being written. So it's not set in stone. It's a story of a people at a crossroads who are constantly becoming. Where justice becomes a moving target. And where our stories are what help keep these visions of change alive. So thank you for starting this journey with me where... I wanted to talk about why study popular culture. Well, if you want to understand a region, its people, its feelings, then yes, start there. Popular culture.